Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. The World Health Organization is describing the unprecedented outbreak of monkeypox as a random event that appears to have been caused by sexual activity at two recent raves. Should we be concerned? And one of the top stories in the U.S. politics? Well, Reggie Cicchini joins us from Washington. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Start off with, uh, I want to talk about what's going on in the political scene, because it's been a busy couple of days, of course. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, hope you had a great long weekend. Thanks for joining us today. I did have a great long weekend, and I hope you did too. I did too. Uh, you know, a couple of down trees in the neighborhood and everything, but we're yeah. surviving at least uh, you know in our neighborhood. So, so uh, just more firewood, I guess, for those uh, fire pit nights we're going to have a little bit later on. Uh, didn't have to pull it off the roof anyway. Uh, I got to ask you right off the top here about what's going on with the conservative leadership race because there's some interesting stories about what Pierre Polyev is doing right now, and we know that uh, uh, he's well. A different kind of politician, shall we say. But uh, what I'm finding fascinating about this is even some of the uh, small-c conservative pundits and and former conservative party leaders, etc., as you and I have talked about in the past, are are just kind of looking at what Pauly ever saying and doing and kind of shaking their heads. And the latest one is Brian Lilly, uh, columnist for the Toronto Sun, of course. And uh, Brian has been on the show many times here as a guest. And uh, he's uh, basically chastising Polyev for for Polyev basically uh, dissing the World Economic Forum and saying if any one of his ministers ever go there, make it a one-way ticket. He doesn't want anything to do with this. If he would become prime minister, he wouldn't do this. And uh, this is this is an economic forum. Stephen Harper has addressed this forum. Uh, John Baird, who's probably a, a co-chair in his campaign, has been to the forum, I think, every year that he was in government. What's what's going on here? Is, is this just an appeal to the extreme right, or is there something to this? Yeah, like, I mean, obviously, between the World Economic Forum and the Bank of Canada, he is trying to just take issue with institutions. And it's, it's, it's interesting to watch because at the same time, he's saying he wants to be prime minister. And he doesn't talk really that much about the, wanting to be leader of the Conservatives. He talks about sort of going right to the Prime Minister's chair. And so at the same time as he wants to occupy this, you know, this institutional piece of, of the puzzle, he's also setting up an attack on other institutions. And I would say not institutions that people necessarily know a whole lot about, right? Like the, the makeup of the Bank of Canada is a complex thing and the difference between fiscal and monetary policy and the role of the Bank of Canada. I mean, that's that's not stuff that people talk about every day nor is the world economic forum but he's he's setting these things up as it seems to me like almost demons like there are things going wrong in your life there are things wrong in terms of the cost of things the cost of housing the you're not like things aren't aren't kind of adding up the way they used to and you're feeling stressed about that you're feeling stressed about your fiscal situation here are some institutions that we can blame for that putting no blame on himself, right? Like there, here are things that we can blame. And if I get into power, I am going to demolish these things or just stop participating altogether. To what end though? I mean, it sounds, 
and, and I know people get all worried and, and bothered when I start using uh, parallels between this and Trumpism, but I mean, th there's a, a similarity to what he's saying here, Laurie. It's basically it, the world as we know it, the institutions that you think mm -hmm. are good for you are actually the cause of all your problems. Uh, and I can fix it. I, I, I'm looking at one of the books right here on my bookshelf here. I Alone Can Fix It, which is a Trump from Donald Trump, of course, when he was running for president. Uh, and uh, and it seems to be that's the mindset that Paulia was trying to impart here. I think you're right. I think that there is something essentially Trump-esque about this that has not only been, this strategy hasn't been employed by Trump alone. There are populists all over the world who mm -hmm. try to appeal to people's sense that, you know, again, that things are starting to feel hopeless. The And there's it's there's a kind of conspiracy theory about it, right? Like the things you thought, just as you said, the things you thought were there to protect you are not. And there's something special about me that I understand this stuff. And you can trust me. If you elect me, it's not about the party. It's about me. I will then tackle these problems that are causing the stress in your life. And so it's a kind of, he's trying to get on people's side. Like he's trying to show, I understand you. I'm the same as you. I understand what you're going through and I'm here to help you. And I'm not going to be affected by these kinds of toxic institutions that everybody else seems to be affected by. And so he distances himself from other candidates. He doesn't want, he, again, he doesn't really talk about the conservative party. He, he's trying to run like a poly, he talks about a poly of government, right? Like he's just putting the focus on himself. And so when you do that sort of thing, it does start to sound like Donald Trump, right? It's this sort of like, I'm going to click, clear the swamp sort of thing. Everything is wrong except me, which is a dangerous political strategy because you don't know what's going to come next, right? And and the person, the people who run for office, we want them to feel, you know, properly restricted, I think, by the institutions we have. That's why they're there. You don't come to power because of you as an individual. You come to power because you, you were the person who was chosen in the right way by the rules we've all agreed upon. So it's sort of a a kind of if, if you think of it as a slippery slope like there could be dangerous next steps here in terms of respect for other institutions and how and what is you know he's got three months left <laughs> in this thing like what what thing is he going mm -hmm. to decide next that doesn't work for us oh maybe uh maybe go on a podcast with jordan uh, peterson i mean that might work <laughs> yeah. oh no he's already done that uh, I right. mean, he just seems to be reaching and say, "What, what more outrageous activities can I do?" Try to. I, it's it's like he's headline seeking, and and, and the conservatives, and the, I'm talking about the small C conservatives. A lot of them are shaking their heads, and which begs the question: Who's going to fall for this stuff? Well, that's it. Like, I mean, I think, and he's he's also, I think, trying to run different kinds of campaigns at once, and so he says these sorts of things. And it was interesting in the leadership uh, debate. Uh, you know, a week and a half ago, the other candidates all united to push on Pierre Polyev's position on the Bank of Canada and on cryptocurrency. Like they all really kind of ra rallied around and said, this is nonsense. Like you can't be serious about this stuff. This is dangerous. And it really shows a significant split in the conservative party in or in the I shouldn't even say party in the conservative movement. There are people mm -hmm. who are attracted to the idea of ripping down the institutions of the country which is essentially not conservatism. Conservatism is about slow change and cautious change and incrementalism and being sure that we understand institutions and traditions and why they exist. And then you've got, you know, so some people are that kind of conservative and other people are saying, let's burn it all down. 
And then in the middle of things, you've got people talking about, well, maybe we should introduce more private delivery of healthcare, which is an incremental sort of change for some people that might sound radical, but it's like, you know what I mean? Like it's very different parts of conservatism. And so in appealing to the people who want to rip it all down, how is he going to still appeal to the people who want to, you know, embark on this incremental change? So I think there's a difference between the kind of rhetoric he uses and that some of the sorts of promises he's being, he's making, right? Because he's still saying like some of the answers in, that he gave in that debate were fairly moderate, you know, around he's not going to do the 2% of, of GDP spending on defense and that sort of thing. Like some of his, some of his ideas are actually not extreme, but the rhetoric he's using it is, in my view. It's an interesting uh, juxtaposition here because I know, well, when Stephen Harper became leader of the amalgamated party, they became the conservative party. Uh, he was accused of all these things, but it wasn't really him uttering any of these phrases or, or these ideas. They were just kind of thrust upon him and say, if you elect this guy, this is what he's going to do. Remember the idiotic commercial liberals ran during that campaign oh, yeah. of uh, tanks in the streets. And this is what General Stephen Harper is going to do. Uh, but Pauli is taking it to the next level. He's he's making these statements and making the news. And I, I just wonder, you know, who's listening to this and saying, yeah, yeah, that's what we need to do here. Uh, you know, uh, inflation right now and the housing prices that are outrageous right now, uh, it's not because of, 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 you know, supply chain problems. It's not because of uh, what's going on in Ukraine. It's it's this government and it's this bank, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, looking for a fall guy. And I, I'm going to name that fall guy so you can direct your anger there. And, you know, as exactly, and as, as I think, you know, people can probably anticipate, this is a highly dangerous political strategy for him, right? If he's basically making the promise, I can fix all this. This isn't because of supply chain global issues. This is because of Justin Trudeau. And so, and, you know, these various institutions that I've claimed to dismantle if I'm elected. And so once he gets to power, what's he going to do? Like, because actually, you know, there are global trends affecting things and it's not so easy as firing Tiff Macklem and appointing somebody else. Like, the, actually, these are, are incredibly complex interwoven problems that are going to take a sophisticated policy strategy to be able to get at. And he's not talking about that stuff, but he's setting up an expectation that he's a savior and savior politics are dangerous. But, you know, if he has people sign on and say, OK, let's do it, we'll give you a try. And then he can't do it. How is he going to manage that? And, you know, then he gets people in the Conservative Party who comes around and says, good Lord, you know, you're no better than the last two. And we kick them out within two years of winning office. So what's going to happen to him? Like, I, I think this is a short term strategy that is extremely dangerous for a lot of reasons. You mentioned the uh, leaders debate from a little while ago. There's another big one coming up this week, and it's the French language debate. Uh, and. I know with all the other headlines that you and I were just talking about here uh, that, that, that he's making and certainly a couple of the other candidates who are concerned about memberships and, and whether or not these are all going to be registered in time, etc. The last couple of uh, leadership campaigns, Laurie, Quebec has played a major role. Uh, yes. in this. Uh, and and you know, basically, Andrew Scheer cashed in, of course, on, on the Quebec dairy farmers, because that's, of course, when the negotiations yeah. are going on for NAFTA. Uh, Aaron O'Toole cashed in on the Quebec vote uh, to get him over the top. Uh, th there's a lot at stake here for this debate this week. Oh, absolutely. And part of it has to do with the way the party counts the votes, right? Because it's not just you know, everybody votes in a referendum style across the country. It's they break it down so that ridings are equally weighted. And so if you're looking at a ride at a, at a province like Alberta, you know, versus a province like Quebec, 
you might have far more conservative members, you know, like per capita, they might have far more conservative members, you know, in one province than another. But if you go into a small riding, you go into a riding in Quebec, and there's only a handful of conservative members, and you're able to persuade them, that's worth as much to you as a riding in, you know, downtown Calgary, that has tons and tons of conservative members, you know what I mean? So like, it's, it's creating a mathematical incentive to be very responsive to Ontario and Quebec who have so many ridings. And so you're right, right? Like it's going to make a whole lot of difference. And so the candidates that are coming to this debate, I think it's, it's fair to say that only Sharae and Polyev are truly bilingual and are able to really debate in French. And so the other candidates are kind of, wanting to show up and show that they're responsive to Quebec, but at the same time with not as much of a command of French, so it's going to be hard. Well, and if you look at it that way, as a two-person race, which is the way some people are characterizing this between Sherry and Polyev, uh, there's no way, that, and we have to remind our listeners, this is a ranked balloting system that they use and yes. have used for the leadership convention. It's probably not going to be one on the first ballot, uh, which means uh, a lot of people are going to be reverting back to second place. But anybody who's for Polyev is not going to have Sheree as their second choice and vice versa. So th this could be a long afternoon. Oh, absolutely. And exactly. And I think like that's another way that Polyev's strategy is kind of a, in some ways a curious one, because I think of all of the candidates, he's the one who is making the least effort at trying to appeal to anybody as anybody's second choice. Like even like I think in the beginning of this, Sheree was sort of accused of going his own way and kind of being that voice that's like i'm the old school conservative and i'm here to repair all the damage that's been done by conservative campaigns over the past 10 years but i think he you know he realized that that strategy was potentially dangerous for him and that he's going to be first and then nobody's second choice and so you saw in the last leadership he's got his you know his, the last leadership debate he's got his arm around roman Baber, like he's you know making that effort to to show listen like he's interested in being a down ballot candidate and so, yeah, like it's it's going to be interesting to see how those ballots are ranked. I think it could go def. I mean, there's six of them. I think it could go a few ballots for sure. I, and if Polyev continues, I mean, his his strategy could shift once the membership sales are over. And then he has to start thinking about how to go around and shake hands and try to become people's second choice. But I think you're right. Like if it's really shaping up as these two front runners, they are the supporters of one are of no they're not interested in the other one it's just two totally different ways of seeing the world well because in the last two leadership campaigns uh, that that's exactly how things panned out uh, you know Maxime Bernier was probably the the winner or the leader rather in the first one and and mm -hmm. he took that attitude didn't he Laurie I don't need anybody's help I'm going to win this thing and and Peter McKay the second time around pretty much the same way well they got shot down as a result of this you, you got to play nicely with the, the your your other people in the sandbox here and polyev doesn't seem to have that and if he if he's turning his back on all these people uh after june uh, early june actually when the, the membership drive is over are people going to remember that and say i don't want i don't want to play ball with you pierre well that's it and this is why they use these kinds of strategies to to select a leader is to incentivize some cooperation and some sense of collegiality throughout the race to try to prevent it from becoming, you know, really zero sum because you're trying to elect a leader that everybody can rally around in the end. And so you build in incentives to appeal to other people's supporters. So it's not just whoever comes first wins on the first ballot, right? Like it's like you have to keep building that consensus support, but it seems like, and this is potentially, you know, very dangerous for the party that the candidates are so far apart 
that even with the incentive structure around the bank rank ballot, they're still not doing it. Like they're still not finding ways to kind of identify with one another and, and find a lot of common ground. It's like they're all coming to it. And some, you know, you can find some candidates with some overlap for sure, but it's it poses a really kind of daunting question around whether this party is even unifiable at the end of this, right? Is this a viable project? Is there anybody of the six of these people who can win this and then actually bring the party together? And I'm feeling like, I don't know, right? Like we might have a scenario where there's going to be a definite, a definitive step forward for some part of the party, you know, depending on who wins and other parts are going to feel left out because if Polyev is trying to grow this thing by building the support on the right side, he's kind of like, I wonder if he's going to keep, as you say, like kind of getting a little more extreme as this goes on. How do you build support on the right do you keep leaning right? Do you keep kind of like, you know, souping up that rhetoric? Is he going to reach at all to the more, you know, red Tory part of the party? It doesn't look like it. So I don't know, three more months. <laughs> well, it's going to be a big week, as we mentioned, because of that French language debate. So uh, uh, we'll be watching with great anticipation. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yes, please. Thank you, Bill. Okay, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about monkeypox here, of course. Uh, Canada's top public health officials say the risk posed by monkeypox is low, but nearly everybody in this country is susceptible because routine vaccination against smallpox, of course, ended decades ago. Now, a couple of cases have been confirmed in Quebec, and about two dozen more potential cases are under review. However, the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New, uh, says that monkeypox is relatively mild, milder than smallpox even, but they are still taking it seriously. In terms of, you know, vaccination campaigns, I think in Canada it stopped in the early 70s. And so I would say generally that the entire population uh, is, is susceptible to this, uh, to, to monkeypox. Well, so should we be concerned about this? I want to bring our next guest into the conversation here. Uh, Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at the uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Are you there, Thomas? Uh, yes, I am. Good. Okay, good. Uh, yep. We're finally hooked up here. This is good. Let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, we're still dealing with COVID and, and the, the, the damage that that has, of course, impacted on a global basis. Then along comes monkeypox. A couple of things, if I could, just to get some clarity on this. First of all, this is not new, is it? I mean, it, this has been around for a few years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a sort of an ongoing uh, you know, condition that ha- is, is primarily occurring in in Africa, Central and Western Africa, they they have sort of ongoing outbreaks, uh, you know, continually, uh, particularly in the uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, so it, it is something that's uh, pretty well known uh, in Africa, you know, particularly through specific outbreaks. But uh, and that's why I suppose they're they're sort of people are a little bit uh, sort of on edge because it's just it doesn't tend to happen in in other countries and so so i suppose that's why they're sort of uh you know raising some just some flags about it now just to say well you know it's not it's not usual for this to to occur in other countries uh and so we want to sort of really keep it keep an eye on things so why is it spreading why is it happening why is it, it, it's it's long gone now it's it's you know the the cage has been open here uh it's not just in continental africa anymore we've had cases here in ontario we've had uh, suspected cases in other parts of the world too yeah well it, it, that's that's the interesting thing you know i suppose the question is we don't know why 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 is it sort of come out come about now um uh, you know 
my you know, my best guess is that you know it's because of uh, because of the return to a lot more travel. Uh, you know, we've got uh, you know a lot more people traveling again, and uh, yeah, that it that's you know because of that uh, additional travel, we're going to see you know these the uh, various you know sort of uh, infectious diseases traveling more widespread than than you know what we we had when with it, when there was the more more of the lockdown so so that's my only sort of guess at this stage uh but you know based on the way it, way this this is transmitted you know we we have to say it, it's really very close contact with someone who who is infected or or the uh say bedding or or other uh materials are infected with with the with the uh the virus so so that's what uh you know yeah, it's really too early to say why why this is sort of reared up now. But this, I guess it's a, really just a result of our, our global experience. I mean, I, I still remember when SARS spread, it's, uh, started happening, and especially in the Toronto area. But I mean, there you know there was concern on a global basis about that. But it was again, it was air, it was air travel, wasn't it? I mean, people that were bringing it in from other parts of the world, uh, bird flu, the same sort of thing. They they start in one continent and, and pretty quickly, of course, because as you say, with all the air travel, uh, you know, all of a sudden these things are starting to show up in North America. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, the the way this is the way this uh, the monkeypox is transmitted is by either through uh, sort of coming into contact with someone who who is infected, and particularly, uh, yeah, they they talk about either respiratory droplets, and and this is that sort of debate the, or discussion we've had with versus uh, with. Uh, COVID, the, the COVID is more aerosolized, and so it's smaller droplets and goes a, a longer way. Whereas for this one, it's the larger respiratory droplets, uh, and so it really means you've got to be quite close to someone for an extended period of time. Uh, and uh, and also the the big one is the the lesions, the the rash that turns into lesions, and those lesions uh, are in are infectious and so so basically you've got to be in contact with someone uh you know very close contact and so so that really means that you know it, it's it's spreading throughout the world because people have you know been in contact with infectious people in uh maybe the congo or other parts of africa and then they've traveled and then you know then uh because of the the uh the infectious the the uh period of between when they're when they uh, in, are infected and when they show the signs of infection, it's it's sort of roughly, you know, uh, I think it's like five days or something like that. You know, that means that they can be back in their home country uh, and then being in contact with people, maybe, you know, particularly loved ones, because, you know, that level of close contact is really someone who is very close to you in, in regard to family or or, or or loved ones. And so, so that it's really, that's why you're going to have this sort of, I suppose, uh, spread within a more localized area once people you know sort of travel how does it manifest itself i mean you know with covid we've learned an awful lot now about uh, about you know these these sorts of diseases there there are varying degrees i mean you know as, as you and i have talked about in the past there are some people that probably had covid and didn't realize it i just thought it was a cold and then of course we see worst case scenarios where as you say there's a severe respiratory problems and, and sadly fatalities in some cases can you have monkeypox and, and not know it or is it only during that incubation period that you may not know it well well generally you uh, generally you, you know you you're going to know that you've got it. Uh, that there is sort of there's research into trying to understand that that aspect of asymptomatic uh, car carriage and infection. And but it, but the 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 general general sort of 
understanding is that uh, you 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 primarily someone who's infected is primarily going to show these symptoms uh, uh, that are the primarily a fever and and a rash this this rash that I, I think a lot of people would have seen this the, like the previous photos of smallpox where you've have the rash that becomes a lesions that are mm-hmm. become very sore and you know and 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 it's something similar to that uh, and so so I think it's pretty easy to sort of identify if someone becomes infected uh, you know at this stage that asymptomatic caveric, uh, longer term infection and it doesn't you know, the, the, the jury's still out whether or not that's going to occur. So so I think that's why they're, you know, they're sort of saying, well, if we identify someone with it, we can, in essence, close a ring around their very close contacts and potentially uh, look at uh, uh, vaccinating those people uh, and vaccinating with with, uh, with the smallpox uh, vaccine and because there's a more recent smallpox vaccine that's been uh, approved for them, for the monkeypox. And so, you know, because basically, as as you said, no one there's really not that sort of residual level of uh, resistance within the community because because smallpox was eradicated and and we we really haven't uh, been having you know vaccinations for 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 a long very long time. Well, is this the tip of the iceberg? Then I, I, can we anticipate that this is only going to happen again and again? Uh, you know, diseases that we once thought were under control may not be. Or do we go back to a vaccination regime here? <laughs> Well, I think what this is sort of highlighting again is, and this is uh, what what they sort of all, what what we also refer to as a zoonotic disease, and that's a disease that, that is primarily in animals and then come then travels to humans. Uh, and you know, and, and that you know, when we're talking SARS, COVID, we're talking a lot of a lot of these. You know, really, re- the reservoir was an animal, and then somehow it's moved to people, and then it's then then it's been transmitted from you know person to person. And so, so I think you know, this is this is uh, you know, I would say it's it's a cautionary sort of thing to say we've got to really keep in mind that uh, that. Uh, the, these sorts of diseases uh, and infections uh, do occur. Uh, you know, the the lockdown over the last couple of years has sort of really restricted a lot of these, a lot of the the movement, particularly because of the travel restrictions. But once the travel is is uh, out, you know, once the travel restrictions are uh, are, are re- relaxed and, and people are traveling more, uh, you know, we're we're really open to the these. Uh, the worldwide spread again, uh, and and particular, uh, you know, a lot of these diseases are, I, you know, uh, are sort of with, uh, we see them a lot, particularly these zoonotic diseases coming initially from Africa and then spreading uh, to to other countries. Not saying that that's where 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 everything comes from, but but we we know that uh, a lot of these do do start in, in and and are there are ongoing outbreaks. Uh, Particularly in the continent of continent of Africa, so so it is really uh, something that where from a prevention perspective, I think we need to it's it's that sort of ongoing surveillance and and uh, sort of isolating people who who might be uh, you know potential cases, so that once once it does get in, we 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 sort of lock it down as quickly as possible. But your point's well taken. I mean, for the last two and a half years, uh, we've been we've been on we've been on guard because of COVID. 
you know, we, we haven't been gathering in, in groups. Uh, there are not too many people with close contact with other humans for the last two years, and we're wearing masks. And I guess in a related story, I mean, we just heard that late last week uh, that there's a real spike now in, in uh, well, in flu cases and things of this nature, even though we're into springtime, uh, because we're, we've basically we've let our guard down in this, and, and that stuff that we kind of forgot about is, is with us now. I guess there's a lesson to be learned here, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. You know what? What you know the the measures that we we uh, implemented for COVID uh, are you know are effective against other respiratory uh, viruses, and so it means the you know influenza virus is is uh, you know it, it's effective for that as well. And and that's what I you know encourage people. You know, I know a lot of people uh, aren't wearing masks very much now, but you know I'd I'd really encourage people to you know when they're out and about in in public places and particularly in in crowded areas to to still wear their mask because that's really really the you know an easy thing to do it it uh, you know it's it's cost effective it doesn't cost you much but it, it can can be the difference between getting infected and not uh, they are they are they are effective and so you know I know that there's a a lot of uh, uh, you know sort of Peer, in essence, peer pressure not to wear masks now because no one else is doing it. But you know, personally, you know, I'm whenever I'm out in public and uh, in indoor settings, uh, you know, taking the TTC or, or you know other transit, and you know, uh, I'm wearing wearing the mask. And uh, you know, I I do sort of you know personally, I do feel it when if I'm you know the only person in the room with a mask. But I just sort of feel well. This is, you know, uh, you know, currently given the state of play with uh, with COVID and and the the high uh, rates of uh, transmission in the community, you know, I, I don't, you know, that's that's an easy thing I can do to protect myself and and also protect others, uh, but uh, you know, I it it's definitely something that you know still encourage people to to think about is the the you know these basic hygiene measures, basic uh, you know sort of aspects of of clo how close do you really need to get to someone to 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 be uh to you know to com connect with them and and uh and just also you know the you know hand washing and and uh and and just those so the basic prevention measures are are, are very effective against a broad range of uh infections is is this a, a typical situation as we just kind of coming out of the COVID's consequence. Hopefully we're going to see a, a light at the end of the tunnel with that. But you, you always talked about people with pre-existing conditions might be more prone to it. Is this the case with monkeypox as well? Well, I, you know, what I would, I would say that uh, we're all probably, I, I don't know if people who ha have pre-existing conditions are going to be more susceptible because we really pretty much everyone's pretty susceptible to it because we there's there's very little immunity within the uh -huh. community for this one so so uh, but you know what i'd say is that if you do have a pre-existing condition you're always going to be at higher risk of of if you do get in some sort of infection to to have a more severe uh severe consequences and so so yeah that's also a, an ongoing uh consideration you know particularly uh you know what while the you know for while we have the rate of transmission in the community for COVID, uh, you know, the, with the flu, uh, the what we're seeing with that, and 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 a, a broad range of uh, uh, infectious uh, diseases that, that you know are, are sort of 
are there normally and and now we've got this one that's you know sort of popping up it's just sort of being mindful well you know how do how do you you know what measures should you take to to uh you know sort of protect yourself and and it's going back to these you know these basic uh measures that we've we've talked about a lot that uh i think is is are important to still maintain and to to keep in mind of Thomas, I want to talk about something else too, and I'm sure you've seen some of the, the things posted on social media over the last couple of days since uh, you know we've seen more cases sort of cropping up. Uh, some people are labeling this as, as a gay disease, uh, suggesting that uh, the spread is actually as a result of uh, uh, some raves, one in Spain, one in Belgium, uh, where there was sexual activity, and as a result, they're, they're saying putting it in the same classification as, as AIDS was back in the in the 1970s when we started to see the spread of that. Uh, is there any scientific evidence to suggest that's even remotely possible uh well yeah I, what i would say is that i you know based on the way it is spread i, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't classify it as a as a gay disease because it's it's really it sure, sure it can be transmitted by body fluids and but but you know anyone who has close contact with someone else who uh you know uh is is in contact with these you know these respiratory droplets that within a, a very uh, close close uh, space uh, and and maybe contact with the the these lesions that are you know that that's pretty much anyone and so so I wouldn't want to say that it's uh, you know it, it's specific to one segment of the community uh, but uh, you know because I I you know anyone uh, with uh, it, it can it can i don't think it's sort of targeting anyone in particular it, it's it's you know anyone who's who's infected and they're quite uh, and then you know that they can be infectious to people who are in close contact with them so so i i'd, I'd sort of really uh be very cautious about uh sort of trying to sort of label things that, that way because i i don't think i don't think it's the case but that close physical contact um, whether it's heterosexual uh, whatever the case might be yeah. uh, you could still be prone to it and uh, i guess we need to be cautious and maybe i guess the best takeaway here thomas is uh, don't get rid of the face masks just yet <laughs> yeah i think definitely you know face masks face masks are still a good idea uh, particularly in uh, indoor settings crowded you know crowded settings uh, you know and, and so so please keep using those as much as you can and uh, and uh, be mindful of, you know, sort of, you know, sort of uh, good hand hygiene, and and uh, and you know, and and uh, if if someone is sick in your is is unwell within your, you know, you know your close circle of friends and, and family, please, uh, you know, you know, sort of be, be mindful of, you know, you know, sort of having them isolate uh, just so that you know, because for as much as possible, just so that they're, you know, whatever whatever they have. Uh, that that they're not uh, you know you know spreading it to 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 the other people you know within their close circle. So so I think it's you know th those sorts of uh, sort of measures are are really really important that we uh, you know keep keep on. And whereas you know I, I you know I do understand that you know people are tired and of 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 uh, all of this after you know uh, you know a couple of years of COVID. But but it's uh, I suppose this is uh, just another. A reminder that 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 uh, you know that that viruses and and other pathogens you know they they're not res are not a respecter of of people or or place or or whatever they they you know they they're out there to to be spread and if we uh, do things that help them spread then then we we will have these these outcomes so so it's so it's really on us to say well how can mm -hmm. we uh, you know you know 
prevent the spread of of of, of whatever these uh, the various range of viruses are. Well, after the last two years, I think we all know the drill. So let's uh, get back to those basics. Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks for uh, shedding some light on this. I really appreciate the time today. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. Have a great day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to go south of the border. Lots of news uh, with U.S. President Joe Biden, who's uh, been on a uh, trip to Asia over the last couple of days. And some comments he made over there have, uh, shall we say, ruffled the feathers of uh, some Chinese officials. Joining us to talk about this and, and lots more, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, always a pleasure. Thanks for hopping in today. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about the, the president's uh, Asian trip, specifically some comments he made uh, at a co-news conference he had with the Japanese Prime Minister Kishada, uh, basically asked if uh, the U.S. would use force to defend Taiwan if it was uh, attacked by China, which is a very timely question, I guess, because of what's going on in Ukraine. And his answer actually shocked an awful lot of people, Reggie. Uh, it shocked an awful lot of people that were in the room with him. It shocked a lot of people that were in Washington, both in the White House and uh, in the congressional sphere. Uh, and it was also shocking to uh, a number of people that were in Beijing. And that's because it sidestepped this decades-long process of kind of ambiguity that the, that the United States holds towards China uh, and towards its actions towards uh, Taiwan. And when the president was asked... If, uh, you know, considering what we've seen go on between Russia and uh, Ukraine, if the United States would step in to protect Taiwan, the president said yes, and almost immediately, as they've had to do with practice before, the, the press room in the administration had to immediately put out a statement saying, look, foreign policy has not changed. We still have this, you know, this ambiguity and this respect for the, the one China policy. But again, it goes to show that this is a president who speaks off the cuff, and oftentimes he is speaking off the cuff of what he feels. Maybe not what the administration feels, but these are still specific and targeted words that the president uses. Is, is he drawing a line in the sand here, Reggie, because of the criticism he's taken for not getting more involved in Ukraine? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's two different things here. Number one, the United States didn't get involved on the ground in, uh, in Ukraine because Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and therefore there is no obligation here for, uh, for the U.S. to get involved. But with the president uh, saying that there would be some form of military intervention in Taiwan, it goes, uh, you know, side and side with the, the defense spending uh, and the military support that the United States provides to Taiwan, despite the fact that it's in the ire of Beijing. But number two, this is a president who all the way back in his candidacy promised to take a strong uh, kind of approach towards China, calling China, you know, a quote, special threat when he was a candidate. And, and he's, you're right. I mean, he's had China in the crosshairs, uh, you know, pre-election uh, and certainly post-election, uh, calling them the, 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 the most important and most dangerous global threat. Uh, but then, of course, Ukraine came along and, and they've had to change the focus. Uh, but the, the situation, as you say, there's always been this idea, OK, let's not bring it up. Let's just pretend it's not there. But there's always been some concern, hasn't there, Reggie, uh, over the last number of years, especially about Chinese expansionism, not unlike what Putin seems to be wanting to do in, in Eastern Europe. And it's made more uh, obvious at the fact that we see China not only kind of expanding its own, uh, you know, policies in the region, but it's also actually expanding landmass with the development uh, of islands in the South China Sea, which has again caught the the kind of uh, you know side eye of of Washington. But there is a growing fear here that China's influence is ultimately going to potentially make it this superpower uh, that could be difficult to control. And that's why the president, when he was making these comments about Taiwan, saying, "Look, Beijing, take a look behind you at." 
Russia and see these ongoing lingering impacts that are going to be from the world felt by you if you continue and should you continue this war uh, in, in Ukraine, essentially saying, look, Beijing, if you ultimately decide to go after Taiwan, there is going to be a lingering consequence, uh, and it's going to be far more than just us trying to target your economy. Reggie, try to bring us up to speed on, on uh, the, the concerns over here. And uh, as I understand it, uh, watching your reporting over the last couple of days after the president's comments, it, it's there's it was not coincidental that he made these in Japan because Japan's very concerned about what could be happening uh, in, in the Asian uh, sphere of, of uh, influence, especially if China decides to to act on this expansionist idea. Yeah, and I mean, look, the president uh, in Japan, uh, this is obviously a strategic visit for uh, for the president, uh, with the United States and Japan being so uh, closely tied when it comes to military, uh, given the fact that there is a U.S. military base operated uh, inside Japan, but also the U.S. and Japan are uh, expected to uh, expand military capabilities. There is an opportunity here and an expectation and likelihood that there will be more and growing joint military exercises between Japan, the United States, and South Korea, something that's obviously going to bother North Korea, but something that's also uh, going to try and develop this greater strength between uh, the United States and Japan when it comes to a more aggressive China. Remember, there is this kind of pact that, that the, with uh, the North Atlantic Treaty with NATO organizations, and there is a pact with Pacific Island nations and Western, uh, uh, Eastern Pacific, uh, Western Pacific nations, but this is a chance to grow and, and kind of show off to Beijing, look, we're, just because you know, we're focused on what's happening in Europe right now, we are going to strategically align with people who, with countries that ultimately feel the threat from you, whether it is your massive military or whether it is this massive grip that you have on the global economy. I mean, there have been some actions, I guess, which are only going to magnify with the concern here. That we, you know, we talked about the uh, reports of uh, of Chinese uh, military flybys near Taiwan in the last little while, and and of course, the as you mentioned, the Chinese government has already responded to this, simply saying that you know the president's uh, saying some pretty dangerous things here. But again, Biden's comment that China is flirting with danger by conducting these military exercises kind of looks like he's throwing down the gauntlet. Uh, this, this is going to be tough for the administration to try to walk back, isn't it? I mean, look, they're already trying to walk it back by saying that foreign policy hasn't changed and this one-China policy and Beijing's, uh, Beijing's assertions uh, are going to be respected again, hiding behind that ambiguity. But, you know, it is worth pointing out, Bill, that the president's words resonated in Washington with the opposing party, with someone like uh, Senator Lindsey Graham coming out and congratulating or praising the fact that President Biden stood up to uh, stood up to China. And remember, Biden always thought that when Trump was president, when Donald Trump was president, that he approached China inappropriately, that the targeted tariffs were inappropriate, that he didn't do enough to put pressure on China. This is a president now who is actively working to push China back, to shrink uh, the size of influence that China can have. And the fact that he is is getting some Republican support here uh, is an important move, despite the fact that you have the administration trying to clean up the words. Is, is this going to magnify itself in, in the other crisis that are involved in, namely Ukraine? Uh, as you say, the administration, the Biden administration, has been pretty adamant that there will be no military involvement, that, that they're doing what they're doing by supplying uh, munitions and, of course, and, and humanity aid as, as, as much as they can. Uh, but they also talked about reopening uh, uh, embassies and, and getting diplomats back in there, too. And uh, the president seemed to hint uh, that, that military support for that might be uh, essential in Kiev. Uh, is that crossing the line? Is that something that, that the Putin administration is going to get riled about? 
I'm sure that it will. Uh, you know, the, the, the President Putin uh, and, and those in the Kremlin have said that, you know, any kind of Western military uh, apparatus, whether it's personnel or whether it is weaponry that arrives in Ukraine, they see that as a red flag. There could be a potential here for, uh, for any kind of, um, you know, special operation that the United States military carries out at its embassy, whether or not it's for protection or what have you. Uh, Russia is obviously going to see this as another escalation, as another uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, red flag. That, uh, that's being waived here by the U.S., but ultimately, you know, it's worth pointing out and remembering that, you know, an embassy is on sovereign territory of the nation inside that country, uh, and, you know, while it has to abide by laws, it is respected that that would be American territory and that there could be an ability here for U.S. military or U.S. special forces to be able to provide protection solely against that building. How the Kremlin is going to see this, or, more importantly, how the Kremlin could potentially spin this, is something that we would have to watch for. And your point's well taken. I mean, U.S. embassies, especially in, in uh, other parts of the world where there, you know, the possibility of trouble exists, uh, U.S. militaries, in, in, they're there. They're part of the staff of those embassies because, as you say, the technicality is that's, that embassy in Kiev is actually U.S. land, uh, the, and, as the Canadian embassy would be, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to figure that Putin's going to look at that as, as a uh, not as a defensive move, but as an offensive move and a slap in the face to, to, to Kremlin, I would think. Yeah, I mean, look, we've already got the Kremlin uh, and Vladimir Putin, you know, waving a fist in the air, frustrated and angry at the fact that there's this NATO expansion possibly taking place uh, in Scandinavia with Norway and with Sweden, despite the fact that Turkey is standing uh, in the way of that right now. But it's something that has the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin's back up. And to know that there could be additional Western troops, and not only Western troops, but American troops potentially heading within just a few hundred kilometers of his border inside of Ukraine, this is something that could, uh, you know, act as a bit of a salt in the wound uh, of, of, of the Kremlin. Uh, and, you know, it's, un, it's kind of the always ever going unknown as to how Vladimir Putin is going to react to this. We've already seen in eastern Ukraine this kind of stepped up military force that, that, that Russia is trying to assert here as it really tries to lay its claim to, to land that doesn't belong to it. Uh, but ultimately, if it now sees a potential further threat, does that put another bullseye on Ukraine? Again, it's something that we have to wait for. And notwithstanding the, the more aggressive approach that at least Biden himself seems to be taking here uh, when it comes to military action, I, I know the polling that you, you talked about over the weekend uh, is still showing that the, the support for Biden is eroding considerably and continues to. Uh, he's not a very popular president. Well, I mean, he's not a popular president overall, but I think what's more damaging to both the president and to the administration right now is the fact that the numbers, especially within Democrats uh, and the Democratic arm uh, of his party and in the Democratic electorate, are also now concerning uh, for the president, uh, with, with, with um, most Democrats saying that, you know, 33, or at least most polls showing that 33% within the president's party say the, the country's going in the right direction. That's down from 49%. That is, you know, three in 10 Democrats of the president's party think that he is doing the right thing to be able to get the country in the right direction. And overall, Democratic support for the president is 73 percent down from 82 percent last year. This is compounding problems for a president who has been dealing with compounding problems since he took office, whether it was COVID, whether it's the fight in Ukraine, or whether it's this recent issue that has to do with baby formula. Uh, this is a president who has had very few wins under his belt and more problems piling up. And the numbers are now showing, given the fact that his own party is frustrated with him.
Well, and that's going to manifest itself, I would imagine, in the primaries that are happening right now, isn't it, Reggie? And I know uh, two very important ones coming up uh, in Georgia and Texas. Georgia, of course, was a huge battleground uh, during the last uh, federal election, of course. Uh, there were recounts. Uh, there, of course, that was uh, the famous Trump phone call to the attorney general. They had to find uh, thousands of votes. In other words, get rid of uh, the Democratic support there. What are we expecting there? Uh, these are uh, not friendlies to the Democrats because the I know the Georgia legislature, uh, after the, the dust finally settled on the federal election, the Georgia legislature has passed some pretty restrictive voting laws right now. Is that going to come back and, and bite the Biden administration there? It's possible that it will, but I think that, especially when we're looking at the primaries today and kind of putting a focus more on the Republicans, I think we're going to see whether or not, uh, you know, the, or what, we may see a test here on whether or not uh, Donald Trump still has this kind of Midas touch when it comes to, to candidates, or whether the kind of efforts that, that Republicans have made across Georgia to make it more difficult, whether that's going to drive out uh, Democratic uh, voters. Look, the, the incumbents that are in Georgia right now, someone like Governor Brian Kemp, someone like Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger. These are people who, uh, you know, former President Trump is not a fan of. Former President Trump did not endorse, but did get endorsements from former Vice President Mike Pence uh, and potentially are going to win this battle tonight. Uh, in the gubernatorial race, Donald Trump put his support behind former Senator uh, 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 rather put his support behind the former senator, David uh, Perdue, who is mm -hmm. trailing in the polls at 30%. This could be a big blow for Donald Trump. On the other hand, he has put support behind Herschel Walker, former NFL star for the Senate, who could win, but likely won't win in a general against the Democrats. Georgia's going to be a problem for the Republicans. It, it, it's interesting what's going on here right now. And, and as you say, the, the, the question everybody's asking is, does, does Trump still have sway within that party? Uh, so far in the primaries, uh, he's had mixed results, hasn't he? Some of the people he's endorsed, as you say, have done very well. Others, not not so much. Sorry. Now, is, is that going to embolden some Republicans to say, hey, maybe this guy isn't the be all and end all that he thinks he is? I think that this, these primaries right now are showing how fractured and how much disarray exists within the Republican Party, and you just have to look towards Pennsylvania, where Trump-backed Dr. Oz uh, is, is trailing by, you know, something like, or is winning, rather, by something like 900 points, and now here all of a sudden we have a secondary GOP member not backed by Trump, but calling to make sure that all mail-in ballots are going to be counted, going against what the GOP mantra has been since the 2020 loss. Uh, Republicans really are having a hard time whether they should be following Donald Trump's candidates or simply following Donald Trump to say, well, look, we want you in 2024, but maybe we don't need you in the interim to be dealing with our candidates. There is really going to be a fracture that is shown tonight in the primaries and in the months to come as to how much control Donald Trump has or if the electorate simply wants to have him take control and leave everything in the wake. And, and as you I know we're almost out of time, but the, the one name that comes to mind here, and you just mentioned it a second ago, Reggie, is Mike Pence. He's been keeping a pretty low profile, but with the, the fractures within the party, it, he's, he's starting to come out of his shell a little bit more. Does, and, of course, we're always going to wonder about a potential run in 2024 for the, uh, the Republican nomination. Yeah, and I mean, look, Mike Pence is, is no, uh, it, it rather has no fan when it comes to Donald Trump. Donald Trump feels that his loss is because Mike Pence didn't steal away the victory for Joe Biden when he was putting that vote tally uh, in, in the Senate and in the House. Uh, but ultimately here, when you have a former vice president now breaking with that kind of GOP echo chamber of this was a stolen election to say, look, we need to look past 2020, we need to look towards 2024, is that going to be enough to resonate with the base, considering there was a lot of Kool-Aid drank by Mike Pence during 
during the Trump administration. Is it going to be remembered that he once stood with Donald Trump, or is it going to be remembered that he's standing against Donald Trump? That's what the GOP primary uh, is going to show. Very big week in U.S. politics, and we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National, as always. Reggie, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, Global's reporter down in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.